No one chooses to be a refugee. This is forced upon them. Welcome to Geneva's Geeks. I'm Meg Riggs, the host of today's episode and a member of the public diplomacy team at the U.S. Mission to the United Nations in Geneva. For today's podcast, I am joined by three experts from three of the many organizations based in Geneva who comprise a collective tasked to provide the support and care refugees around the world deserve in times of crisis. But before we jump into our discussion, listeners should know that our guests who participate in this podcast do so in their personal capacity. They are volunteering their time. The views and thoughts and opinions expressed belong solely to the discussant alone and do not necessarily represent the official position or policy of their employer, organization, committee, or other group or individual. That is the end of our boringly necessary legal disclaimer. I want to thank the United Nations Information Service for making available to us the historic League of Nations radio studio. Now, dear guests, if you would, please introduce yourselves. What do you do and where are you from? My name is Nancy Izzo-Jackson. I'm a Deputy Assistant Secretary at the Department of State's Bureau for Population, Refugees, and Migration. Hello, my name is Ayaka Ito. I'm a Deputy Director of the Asia Bureau of the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees, UNHCR. Hi, my name is Boris Michel. I'm the Regional Director for Asia-Pacific for the International Committee of the Red Cross in Geneva. Tell us what brings us together here. Well, I would start by saying we are facing the largest global displacement the world has seen since World War II. 65 million people forcibly displaced. I come to Geneva because our critical partners are the UN High Commissioner for Refugees, UNHCR, and the International Committee for the Red Cross, the ICRC. It is through these two extraordinary international organizations that the U.S. government is able to provide life-saving assistance to people in desperate situations. I'm just back from Afghanistan and Pakistan, where I had the distinct pleasure to see those operations in action and to hear stories that are truly heart-wrenching, but also heartwarming in terms of what the international community is doing to meet people in need. The ICOC, as you know, has been founded in Geneva in 1863, and Geneva is also the place where the first Geneva Convention was signed in 1864. And for the anecdote, I think it will be worth mentioning that it was signed in the Alabama room yeah, uh, in the great the town hall of Geneva. Uh, it's a story between UK and US at the time where Swiss uh, government uh, played the mediator and found the solution. But it's interesting to see that the first Geneva Convention <laughs> the Alabama was, a boat. was signed was a ship. there. Yep. But a bit more uh, seriously, I think it's important that we operate from Geneva for a number of reasons. Partners are there, humanitarian partners, important ones are there. Uh, and that's the place also where permanent missions are being based. Uh, well-equipped permanent mission, very much uh, aware of humanitarian issues. And to me, as a regional director for Asia-Pacific, engaging with the permanent mission of Afghanistan, India, Pakistan, or uh, both Koreas, or, uh, you know, Pacific, New Zealand, Australia, is at the core of, of my work. And that's where also we can have this very important dialogue that helps the U.S. administration make their decisions with regards to partnering with us. If Boris is uh, from Switzerland, then I'm from Japan, and I remember my high school textbook, The League of Nations, Geneva. Um, so I'm sort of, again, honored to be able to work in Geneva and the United Nations environment. Um, as Boris said also, it's a, it's a neutral environment, non-political environment for a humanitarian agency like UNHCR. It really gives us 
good space to discuss sometimes quite sensitive issues, but shield it from political debate. And uh, also, um, if you look at the statute of UNHCR coming from 1950, actually it says that the headquarters of UNHCR should be in Geneva. Mm. So it's already written in our statute. And it just also add to this, I think also it's important, apart from our partners like ICRC, IFRC, we have also academic institutions like International uh, Institute. Mm. And this also gives us a lot of good thinking and then thinking out of box. And also merger with practice and academic is also giving us good opportunity in Geneva. We also have IOM, who is here, the International yes, Organization of yeah. Migration. And there are a lot of other international NGOs that are based here because it keeps this ecosystem of conversations happening. We would be remiss to not do a shout right. out to them as well. And it's a wonderful symbolism, right? We're all the humanitarian action that we do collectively is enshrined in the Geneva Conventions, as you say. So we're really at kind of the birthplace of this idea that there is international humanitarian law that should govern how nations behave and how we treat one another. I love that symbolism. It's really great. And also the neutrality piece. I hadn't thought mm -hmm. about that, but Switzerland, it's just a lovely kind of package, if you will. I think we would be remiss to not break down what humanitarian means. To us, this isn't obvious, but we live in it every day. If you were talking to someone who does not live and work in Geneva, what does that mean? Well, I'll start from, from the U.S. perspective. For us, our humanitarian principles are enshrined in the idea of the dignity of man. And we always like to say in the State Department that our bureau, in working with humanitarian assistance, we are the human face of diplomacy. So much of what we do is not the normal work of kind of bilateral state to state. It is about human being to human being. It is about ensuring that people who are fleeing violence and persecution find safety somewhere and that the international community as enshrined in these principles and the refugee convention we as a global community have a responsibility to refugees when they are fleeing persecution to take care of them to ensure that they find protection and so for me humanitarian really means humane it means we look at each other as individuals and recognize that every individual has value and uh, deserves being treated with dignity and is given an opportunity to feel safe and to meet their basic needs. And so throughout all of our programs, the person is always at the center of that equation. So it's less about the geopolitics. This gets to the neutrality that you were pointing out to. It's more about that human connection. So it's, for me, what attracts me to this is humanitarian diplomacy is, is taking diplomacy down from states mm -hmm. to people. For us, UNHCR, I think uh, apart from these humanitarian principles, what is really important is to protect those who are victims of persecution, victims of violence, and and, and also finding solutions yes. to these uh, uh, problems. And our work is grounded in the field. In fact, a number of UNHCR staff serving in the headquarters in Geneva is very small, less than 10% of our staff. So for us, humanitarian work, humanitarianism, really face-to-face -face interaction with the refugees and other people who are victims of uh, violence and persecution and amplifying their voice, places mm -hmm. like in Geneva, and trying to find the solutions. Mm -hmm. And this is how we see also in real terms and real work our humanitarian uh, spirit is. 
Yeah, and I think that for the ICRC, we, we have a very similar approach um, than the one uh, of the UNHCR. I think uh, the three axes, main axes of work of the ICRC is about law, international humanitarian law, its operations in the field, proximity, being close to the victims, to the people we want to protect and assist, and uh, developing policy. That means influencing uh, political authorities, governments, and other actors, such as non-state actors, influence the way they conduct hostilities, influence the way they operate in the conflicts or in the situations of violence, and influence them positively when it comes to respecting uh, human dignity, respecting the medical mission, respecting the people, the detainees, and all people who are protected by international humanitarian law. So uh, this dual presence and work uh, both in the field, in proximity of the victims, and uh, engaging in an intense relationship to all the stakeholders, starting with governments, but also all weapon bearers and other influencers is, uh, is very key. And what are the challenges that you're facing right now? Probably the biggest challenge is really expanding, spreading conflict and violence and humanitarian access. And the spirit of humanitarianism and humanitarian principles are being challenged all over the world. We saw the latest violence also in Afghanistan, for instance, and uh, our access in the field is being limited and more and more. And the safety. Meaning that you aren't being allowed to get to the people who need that assistance. Exactly. And it's m- getting more and more difficult to have a face to face conversation with the, with the people. And this is very critical for us to be able to respond timely manner and uh, and also the manner in which that we can maintain, we can keep their dignity, as Nancy said. So that is the biggest challenge, our access, and then also respect for humanitarian principles. And we're about to go into the rainy season for a lot of the places that are impacted, and so shelter and food is going to become a bigger challenge. For the ICRC, the challenges nowadays are... Uh, of different kinds. Uh, I think in the field we face an increasing challenge in accessing to beneficiaries and victims. Um, There is a very important fragmentation uh, within armed groups uh, which make the reading of the situation very difficult and our, let's say, discussions with the different stakeholders difficult to, to navigate. Getting security guarantees nowadays in some uh, hard conflicts is is increasingly difficult. It's difficult to operate, that's one. The second big challenge, I think, is about this lack of capacity um, of the countries, the nations, and uh, globally speaking, to find solutions to conflicts. Uh, And the instrumentalization of the humanitarian action Mm -hmm. in the sense that there is no, for us, a humanitarian solution to political problems. Mm -hmm. And as long as this will not be solved, we will uh, keep facing uh, immense challenges, Mm -hmm. uh, violations of international humanitarian law. And this is really something that is uh, of concern to us. So that's both governments punishing their own people intentionally or unintentionally and then also other countries agreeing to take those people who are fleeing and provide them shelter in those places it's like a two-way piece that we're failing to kind of get everyone to play along and just to add to that i think i think access and security are the 
biggest challenges we collectively face as a global community, but I would also say it's just the scope, scale, and nature of conflict mm. in mm. the modern era. It is it is no longer state against state. It's non-state actors. It makes navigating the space in which humanitarians have to operate increasingly complicated, difficult, and I would say dangerous. Um, mm-hmm. It is also the protracted nature yes. of displacement. You know, we talk about solutions, and, and we are used to being able to have an end of a conflict, and then people can go back in home in safety and dignity voluntarily. But conflict is protracted increasingly, and so solutions are harder to come by. And so more and more we face situations where we're looking at second and even third generations of people mm. being displaced. So a refugee from Somalia living in Kenya may never have been to Somalia, born in Kenya, but still considered a refugee. And it's 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 that protracted and difficult situation that we're in to find solutions and a, an increasingly complicated and dangerous environment in which we continue to need to provide assistance. It's a challenging job. And these organizations do it so admirably and well, it's quite humbling to see. Given the gravity of the situation, are there successes in the past year that you think show us moving in the right direction? You know, in this line of work, we have to always see the glass half full, <laughs> not half empty. And this is how we survive also in difficult circumstances. I think in the last year, one big achievement was pretty much for us to be able to keep the three largest displacement affected countries in the region that I cover at least. So that's Pakistan, Iran, and Afghanistan, keeping these countries together in discussing all together how to approach this problem regionally and how to bring about solutions. Now, certainly we have lots of successes in the field, but at the Geneva level, just because of this non-political environment, we are able to bring the three players together. Mm -hmm. Like last October, for instance, we brought three governments, high-level officials together to discuss the ongoing, at that time, quite difficult repatriation of Afghan refugees Mm -hmm. from Pakistan to Afghanistan. And then all three parties agreed that solution is really necessary, so they agreed to work towards solution. And also they agree to respect the principle of voluntary return. So this reaffirmation of principles... I think we can uh, we could achieve it just because this was Geneva. It was much easier to bring the three players together, often a political arena. There may be tension, but we are able to really stick to humanitarian discussion. I would also say um, some of the success we've had is to continue to maintain space for people to flee and find safety even when countries are overwhelmed and I'm thinking in the case of of Africa there are so many large refugee hosting countries in Africa who have been very generous in continuing to keep their borders open so that people can can Mm -hmm. find safety and it's a challenge in terms of the assistance side, but it's that generosity of keeping the doors open to people in need that I think what is what motivates us to continue to help them cope with this incredible responsibility of, of providing for so many people who are not their citizens. And so we share as a global community those efforts. 
And so in the past year, we've seen more in increasingly development actors coming forward, especially in protracted situations, long-term displacement, years on end, such as the World Bank. In the case of where I've just come, Pakistan and Afghanistan, the World Bank has stepped up tremendously mm. and is providing additional resources to help those countries deal with displacement. So I think that's a good news story because the more hands we have to help uh, work through this, uh, the better the outcomes will be. My last assignment was Burkina Faso, just as the war in Mali broke out. And it was a year of drought. Mm -hmm. And the Burkina Bay were already worried about how they would feed their own people in the Sahel. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden, we had hundreds of thousands of additional Malians living in camps in an already strained environment. Right. You couldn't have locals see trucks and trucks of food and shelter arriving for the refugees there while they were starving. Exactly. And so we had to find a way to combine the development and mm -hmm. the mm -hmm. humanitarian responses so that both the local community and the refugees that were arriving there for safety to thrive together instead of feeling like they were competing for those same resources. And the Burkina Bay did a lot of work to try to make sure that they were good hosts and mm -hmm. were thinking about textbooks in the right languages and putting all those pieces together. But I think Burkina Faso is not a wealthy country. Mm -hmm. They are already struggling to educate their own people and to build the economy they want. And then that's an additional strain. But it took a country who really talked about access. They're more than willing to provide access and willing to work with those partners. The challenge is countries where they're hesitant to work to alongside with you. Yes, mm -hmm. that's true. Uh, and I think from an ICSC perspective, it is very important what you described, the solidarity between people, between communities. Uh, and I think from our side as a humanitarian responder, it is very important also to take into account the needs of the host communities because they bear the brunt of most of the displacement. And we've seen in many countries in Africa, but also in Asia, that host communities uh, accommodate millions or hundreds of thousands of people for years and years. So our response should also be uh, oriented towards uh, these um, populations. I think what it is important also to do is to keep operational humanitarian presence and proximity in all these areas affected by conflict, even when it is very volatile. Uh, the example of Afghanistan for mm -hmm. me is very striking. We see return of people from Pakistan, sometimes a little bit also from Iran. But what is important is that on the spot, when these people arrive, uh, we are also able to secure a safe environment, humane uh, conditions. We are also in support to local authorities and local communities to welcome these people and to make sure that they benefit from the respect from authorities. It's difficult to accommodate return of hundreds of thousands mm. of people mm. in a highly unsafe environment, and, and this is of concern. So being there close to the victims is very important. My very first assignment was Tbilisi, Georgia, and they'd had a group of people who had been ethnically Georgian in Abkhazia mm -hmm. and had been pushed out. Mm -hmm. And so they technically were being repatriated, but to a place that they hadn't lived they in generations. Mm -hmm. And so you also have a situation people being repatriated when they don't have houses or schools mm -hmm. or communities to connect with. And I think people forget that some of that repatriation is not voluntary and that you don't necessarily have the social safety net to arrive. And I think for Americans, it's hard to envision beyond the pictures of a baby on a beach. Right. What does that look like for the average yeah. family? Yeah. And, you know, we saw that um, in Pakistan, I had the opportunity to visit a center where Afghans go to register uh, 
babies that are born to them in, in mm-hmm. Pakistan so that they can be put on their proof of registration card, which is their way of staying legally in Pakistan as a refugee. And I chatted with a grandmother who was there with her son to register her grandson. And this woman had fled Afghanistan in the early 1980s with her son, who was at the time a small child, and she fled with her children and her blind husband to a country where she knew no one and had to restart her life, which she's had, which is an extra, I mean, it's extraordinary if you think about it. And here they are kind of registering kind of the third generation in Pakistan. Um, and, and yet that child and her son are Afghan refugees. So it's hard for Americans, I think, to realize when we talk about displacement, we're talking about victims who fled in an emergency situation, left everything behind, having to restart their lives often with very little in, uh-huh. in terms of a safety net because these situations are so protracted, because conflict doesn't end. Their children and their children's children may still grow up in a situation of unease or insecurity in the sense that they're still refugees and not necessarily citizens of that country. So it's a it's a very touching story to to meet in in a real sense the people you talk about the numbers but it's the people when you meet mm-hmm. them that really resonate right. And you've talked about humanitarian law. A lot of that conversation is about if you are that third generation Afghan refugee in Pakistan, do you have access to the university? Mm-hmm. Do you have access to healthcare? Do you have access to buy land? At what point do you now? put down roots in the place that you're in. Mm-hmm. I know that Uganda has done groundbreaking work on the right to work. And there's a story. Absolutely. Yeah, and when you're either a refugee or an internally displaced person or a returnee, what do you need? You need uh, security. You need education for your kids. You need uh, health services. That's the minimum. And ideally, you need a job to make, to give some sense uh, to your life and to resume something uh, in, in your life. And I think this should be Guaranteed, and this should be given to all those people, even when the conflict is not over. Uh, and I think this is also part of the work of uh, HCR, ICRC, to make sure that even in situation of conflict, protracted, we, we should also bridge this gap between strict emergency, which mm-hmm. provides the minimum, mm-hmm. and longer-term, more <laughs> developmental response, uh, which is exactly what the people need. And uh, we should also be able to do that, even though when there is still no political solution and pending these solutions, we we have a lot of work to do. And here I think, uh, especially for the protracted situations, like Iran and Pakistan, they hosted Afghan refugees for 40 years, millions of them. And this is exactly where we need to really have much stronger international responsibility sharing. Neighboring countries should not be really bearing the responsibility alone. The countries afar uh, also need to chip in financially as well as what we call as a resettlement taking them from the neighboring countries and then bringing to a new future in another country and what is um, sad to see these days unfortunately is because of this visibility of refugee crisis globally often refugee protection receiving refugees has become a political issue. So there's a blurring of politics and purely humanitarian action. 
And this is sort of struggle that we are facing day on day-to-day basis mm-hmm. these days. Afghan refugee situation is a good example of how we can still steer the discussion towards more humanitarian response, depoliticize it, and finding solutions for 40 years of uh, displacement. In the U.S. government, we're very proud that we are the single largest country donor to humanitarian operations globally, and, and certainly our two major partners, UNHCR and ICRC. We're proud to support the work that they do because we think the work that they do is so invaluable on a humanitarian front, but on a broader kind of geopolitical front in terms of stabilizing areas that could become increasingly unstable as these kind of shocks to the system happen when you have large movements mm-hmm. of people. And what are host countries that have done a good job of being innovative of how they've dealt with the burden of additional refugees who are kind of leading the way and how you could handle it as a receiving country? You mentioned one, Uganda. Mm-hmm. I mean, what they're doing in terms of settlement communities mm. as opposed to camps is innovative and it's wonderful. It increases um, the dignity and self-reliance of the individuals so they're not dependent on kind of handouts, if you will, from the international community, but they're able to kind of farm land and, and, and earn a living and, and make their own choices in life. That's humanizing and it also adds to dignity. So I think Uganda's one prime example of, of kind of creative... And why is it unique? What are they doing differently that other states are not doing? Historically, we've seen refugees living in camps. The trend now is urbanization, more refugees, and this, you know, really the situation in Syria and the Syrian refugee crisis in Jordan and Lebanon really brought this to the fore, that increasingly um, refugees are fleeing to cities and towns. They don't live in camps. And so our response needs to be different. It's not about managing a camp as an international community. It's about how do we ensure that those uh, refugees have access to services, as we were saying. Um, uh, you can identify who is truly vulnerable and reach targeted assistance to them. What makes U- Uganda unique is Uganda has had camps, and they've moved away from them, recognizing that it is more dignified and better for refugees if they're not in an camp, but they're moving towards, in the case of Uganda, a settlement, but it's more like a town, right? It's more like that urban look that we see happening around the globe, this kind of urban trend. And they're allowed to really have work. They're allowed to work and trade and be part of the... They're allowed to kind of become self-sufficient. In some places have created a barrier of you can't work. Mm -hmm. You have to be here, but then you can't work, which then... you can't move. Right. You know, there are some situations where people don't have the flexibility to move. And that's where the laws and changing those laws really matter. Absolutely. Other examples... You know, in the African refugee situation, the very fact that the, the two countries, Pakistan and Iran, hosted millions of refugees for, for decades, that in itself is actually a tremendous, tremendous contribution to the international community. On top of that, the place like uh, Pakistan also, they open uh, public schools to refugee children, and also they have uh, this particular initiative w- in which financial resources are going to both host communities as well as refugees mm-hmm. so that that creates an atmosphere of coexistence, mm-hmm. bringing down the tension. Neighboring country, Iran, they also open up schools to refugees, not only refugees but even undocumented foreign children. So education is open to everybody. And also uh, the Iranian government is including refugees in the national health insurance system, mm-hmm. universal health insurance system at par with the nationals. So this is really groundbreaking and really trying to mainstream refugee care and assistance into the existing services. 
kind of shifting from like contain it right. to let's yeah. assimilate it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's true that each country is managing in its own sensitivities, and it's true we have the legal bodies, conventions. So it, it's a sensitive and complicated uh, discussion, but I think, uh, as you said, both of you, what is important is solidarity, uh, this capacity to integrate people, uh, keep them busy, uh, give them human dignity, take good care of them, and I think that's the most important. But that's not the easy part. <laughs> yeah, it's hard. But I think we've come a lot in terms of other successes. You know, last year on the margins of the UN General Assembly meetings, we had the Leaders' Summit on Refugees. And that brought together both refugee hosting countries as well as donors, as well as the international community. And at that summit, these challenges were highlighted and pledges and commitments were made to address them. So you saw donors pledging increased humanitarian assistance so that in the short term, the international community can help provide assistance. Refugee hosting countries, a number of them made them com- made commitments on access to education, opening their education system, access to livelihoods and jobs, and giving them that space to work. Um, and resettlement countries made commitments in terms of third country resettlement. So we saw the global community come together with every Everybody saying we have a peace towards a global solution, whether that be through protection, whether that be through assistance, or whether that be through solutions, durable solutions. I think that also is kind of another innovative a success of the past year. I think it is innovative. I think I've been with the State Department for 17 years. When I think about my first assignments and how we perceive refugee camps Mm -hmm. and things being contained, Mm -hmm. that there's a real cost to assimilation. In the United States, we always talk about how much it cost to educate each child and so if you think about a thousand new kids hitting a school and say it's four thousand per kid that village if the parents aren't allowed to work and pay taxes there's not four thousand per kid to go into educating each of those children and so if you're only giving money to the camp to build latrines and water sources but you're not paying the local community for the school then they now have a burden of say forty thousand or four hundred thousand to educate these additional children and they're being asked to do it or commanded to do it, but don't necessarily have the tax revenue to cover that. Like, there are... I think we're thinking outside the box, mm-hmm. literally. And I also think we're thinking differently about refugees, which is really good. Uh, we're no longer seeing them as this drain on your your mm-hmm. community, but they are actually agents of change and agents of economic development themselves. And if countries... Um, enact kind of humane policies that allow them freedom of mobility, access to education, access to jobs. They actually become an economic driver. They are earning money. They are contributing to the community. They're paying the tax base. So we're now not talking about them as some entity that sits in a camp and just has to be provided shelter and food and taken care of, but an independent actor who can contribute to the community and can add to the community. And I think that's revolutionary in a lot of ways. I do too. For us also, our interaction with refugees has been changing because they are the agent of change. And we have to really change how we interact with them. They are the primary mover. They are the part of the solution and really have to empower them. And we, the way we interact with them has drastically changed in the past uh, few years. That's not a small thing. No. I think about who the, the bulk of all vulnerable people are that are in this position. So children without parents, um, thinking about... Female-headed households, mm-hmm. women, women with small children. Exactly, and then you get there and they want to register the head of household and there's a block in thinking yes. that it could mm-hmm. be the female that's the head of that household. Disabled people. 
And then yeah. thinking about also the right to give citizenship. There are a lot of countries where the mother isn't the person who mm, gives yeah, the citizenship yeah. to that child. And so statelessness is statelessness, a yeah, yes. big problem. You were born in a place, you physically came from a human who belonged to somewhere, but yet you need to be able to make that connection. And, so. and think about being stateless. I mean, if you don't have a country that will acknowledge you as their citizen, you have no documentation, you can't travel, you can't open a bank account, you, c you can't do anything, you, you kind of don't exist legally. Statelessness creates incredible vulnerability for mm. people, and I think it's one of the hidden stories mm -hmm. we don't talk very much yeah. about, but the danger of becoming stateless during this pattern of flight is a real danger that I think we have to be cognizant of and prevent happening. And you've done, uh, UNHCR yeah. has done tremendous work on statelessness in the last few years. Yeah, we have a campaign to eradicate <laughs> uh, statelessness. It's a challenge, but I think it, because of this campaign, there's been an increasing level of awareness. And it's, as, as Nancy said, it's sort of a hidden issue. It's mm -hmm. not really, it doesn't really come to the uh, TV screen or anything. It can be a cause of displacement. And the identity is also entry point for protection. You need to be protected, but the you know you have to be able to say who you are. So, for instance, the birth registration is also extremely important in refugee setting as well, mm -hmm. and that's where also we work very closely with the UNICEF to ensure children have birth registration. So there's mm -hmm. a lot of work to be done in that area as well. I feel like you're, like, sitting on something. I know. <laughs> I know. Boris so looks like he's ready to say no, no, something. No, 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 there, there are so many different situations. You know, we talk about statelessness. You know, it can lead to despair and when people are desperate. Uh, then it's the beginning of, of another, you know, dynamic sometimes. So absolutely we have to be careful with statelessness and desperation. I think also uh, when people... Um, have their links cut uh, when there is no family news between a detainee and between a displaced family or refugee family. Those are exactly the, the, the domains where we can intervene. Um, Re-establishing family link is so important between the people mm -hmm. um, to make sure that uh, they are reassured uh, and they have news about their beloved uh, uh, once you know there are so many things we can do as humanitarians along the route of migration displacement and refugee because we deal with people between people and we also can influence uh, good decisions by uh, political uh, actors uh, actors yeah. and deciders mm -hmm. so i think it's very rewarding also what we do all right, so the end of each conversation is who have you looked at their work this year and thought, all right, I'm going to dig a little deeper because if they're doing that great work, I need to push harder too. So I would say for me it's not any one person. It's it's two groups of people, right? And it's the beneficiaries. It's the people that we seek to help because their resiliency and their ability to survive in oftentimes extraordinarily difficult situations. No one chooses to be a refugee. You know, mm -hmm. This is not a choice. This is forced upon them. And the fact that you meet these individuals who have fled with almost nothing and somehow manage to raise children, stay hopeful, extraordinary. I often think, oh my goodness, if I were in their shoes, would I be strong enough to do that? And then the other group that inspires me are the aid workers, the, the, the humanitarian aid workers from UNHCR, from ICRC, from UNICEF, from IOM, from all the NGOs, they go to places that are not just difficult to work in, but dangerous to work in. 
And, you know, we talked earlier about the nature of conflict changing, and so many aid workers have lost their lives just trying to provide life-saving assistance to people they've never met before. And that's extraordinary. Last time I was in Iran visiting, and I met um, two sisters, girls, about 16 and 17, and they love playing football. They organized sort of community network where smaller girls also come to them and they teach football. And in this process, they actually are able to identify, yes, this girl, five years old, her mother, uh, her father disappeared. Mm. This girl, she doesn't have a document. So through this football process, they're <laughs> able to identify and then try to address and through us or even through the government to these pl- these issues. These are teenagers. These are teenagers. <laughs> I was just, uh, I was amazing. You know, we have all these nice concept and everything. <laughs> these girls through football helping their friends. We played football together. And at the end of the football game, I, I just asked that these two girls, so what, what, what would you like? What do you need? And we are so used to getting answers like uh, food, shelter, and even documentation. But these girls said, I want to have a proper coach. <laughs> I want to have a football pitch. Oh, my. So to me, that is actually dignity. You know, these girls are not refugees. These are real girls, real human beings, dreaming for something. And to me, that was so inspiring. And uh, I was so happy to be able to really work with them. For me at, at ICRC, unfortunately, it's a bit more sad, but uh, it's true that those who inspired me this year in particular uh, are my teams uh, in the field, in particular in Afghanistan. And I would like here to pay tribute to my six colleagues who were killed uh, in northern Afghanistan exactly today, four months ago. And those two who are still abducted um, uh, today. Uh, I also want to to pay tribute to their families because uh, when you lose a loved one uh, in the middle of a conflict, uh, in the middle of an uncertainty, uh, it's very difficult and it takes a lot of resilience and understanding. And uh, I, I really would like to, to highlight that. And in parallel to this, um, we have uh, a very important physical rehabilitation program in Afghanistan mm-hmm. running since 25 years now, and which was created and, and built from the scratch by uh, one of our colleagues, uh, Mr. Alberto Cairo, who has spent 25 years in country, uh, who has been training thousands of national Afghan staff, empowering them and also giving them a job because uh, half of them are disabled themselves victims uh, of the conflict. So I find it a a beautiful story and I really admire the energy that was uh, put by Alberto, who is also, by the way, running uh, around the world to promote physical rehabilitation in Afghanistan, change the mentalities and the perceptions of the people also in the country, because when you are disabled, you still have a future, you can still be rehabilitated, reintegrated into the society, namely uh, with a job, but also through sports. And uh, Alberto has created also a number of basketball teams for disabled people. They are themselves being coached coached by a US uh, citizen disabled, Mr. Jess Markt, who is uh, also training so many disabled on basketball across the world. 
Well, thank you guys so much for making time out of your busy schedules to be part of our conversation today and part of the Geneva Geeks podcast. Thank, thank you, you for having us. Thank you. I can't thank enough Nancy Izu Jackson, Asia Akio Ito, and Boris Michel for taking time out of their busy schedules to be part of this podcast series. Thank you to the United Nations Information Services sound team at the Historic League of Nations radio studio for helping us do justice to our guests' ideas. As we explain in the intro to the podcast series, each episode will delve into a completely different field. Collectively, they will tell the story of the diverse array of international experts, our favorite of Geneva's geeks, and their innovative collaborations that will impact our future. Thank you, listeners, for tuning in. This is my last installment of the Geneva Geeks podcast. My amazing teammates will take this podcast forward. Be on the lookout for our upcoming episodes in the coming weeks. You can listen to the podcast at the U.S. Mission to the United Nations in Geneva website or subscribe on iTunes. We look forward to bringing you into the fold of Geneva's geeky discussions that we couldn't stop thinking about. We hope that you find them as compelling, too.